is going to talk to us tonight on the subject in which he's the only qualified person in America. <laughs> uh, he's going to talk to us about the assassinations of President Lincoln and Kennedy as they are seen through the eyes of Jack Ruby's lawyer. It's a great privilege indeed. In my first meeting to have such a fine speaker and a fine program, Elmer Griffiths. Thank you, Berlin. Friends, it's good to be back. I feel a little diffident because I'm breaking the heart, you could say, ashes have a heart, uh, one of my dear friends in announcing that I'm going to read much of the talk. Otto Eisenschemmel and those of us who founded the round table would sooner have died than to read a talk. That was one of our inflexible rules in the old days, and it's a good rule. But then as you get gray hair, grandchildren, and you get filled with the subject, you sometimes think that you ought to spare the audience and yourself by reading some of it. I hope uh, I'll read as well as my granddaughter and others. And if not, please speak up. And I, ho I hope to intersperse this manuscript with some improvisations, if my ears permit them. And I hope that when I'm through, one of the old round table habits will be very much in evidence, that you'll proceed to tear me apart, gently or ungently. Otto used to say we ought to be gentlemen, but I'm not so sure that we ought to be gentlemen. Within a few weeks after the jury in Dallas had agreed upon a death sentence for Jack Ruby, the hapless slayer of Lee Harvey Oswald, I became associated in one way or another with his case. From the fall of 1964 until Ruby's death and burial in January 1967, I was one of his attorneys of record, as the legal jargon goes. I argued successfully for the reversal of his death sentence before the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals and participated in many other legal proceedings that led to this ultimate result. When irony was underscored in the Ruby saga by an irreversible sentence of death through cancer, I was one of the very few who had discovered that he was terribly ill before the Dallas jail authorities got around to learning that quite obvious fact. With his brother Earl, I was responsible for the now famous, then secret deathbed statement that Ruby gave on tape. I was one of the pallbearers at the obsequies. I helped prevent the graveside services from becoming an obscene spectacle. I was essentially an advocate. But always with one part of my brain, I retained my objectivity. A sense of history, a decent respect for the facts kept me from going overboard. Now that Jack Ruby no longer requires an attorney, I am, I hope, wholly the historian. Eager to record this extraordinary case for our day and perhaps for later generations. The prayer of the doomed fellow is mine too. Nothing extenuate and set down not in malice. This is the whole truth so far as I learned it. All of its complexity and confusion made as simple as possible. For its proper setting, the story must go back a bit. 
a century indeed, to the assassination of another president, Abraham Lincoln. On the evening of April 14, 1865, General and Mrs. Grant were to have accompanied President and Mrs. Lincoln to Ford's Theater in Washington for a performance of our American cousin. The president himself had urged the great military hero to attend and the invitation had been qualifiedly accepted. The newspapers were notified and there were advertisements published of what was certain to augment the attendance on what was normally a bad theater night, Good Friday. Suddenly the Grants excused themselves from going, saying that it was necessary for them to return to their home in Burlington, New Jersey in order to see their children. Had the Grants gone with the president and his lady to the theater, the generals armed orderly and perhaps others would have been on guard outside and possibly in the box as well. Neither John Wilkes Booth nor any other unauthorized or dangerous person could then have gotten within range of the president. And with so many eyes in the crowded house on the hero of the day, the conqueror of Lee, it was unlikely that anyone would attempt the life of the president or get away with it. With the grants elsewhere, the Lincolns had to make last minute, less satisfactory arrangements for the evening. And the result was disaster and martyrdom. Students generally pass by this great if of history. In every monumental event, there are imponderables, and it sometimes seems a child's game, not a scholar's, to speculate over them. Dr. Otto Eisenschimmel was a great exception. This enormously interesting man of the widest interests, chemist, businessman, historian, musician, baseball fan, and intellectual adventurer, was deeply absorbed in all aspects of the Civil War, initially because his father had been a captain at the Battle of Shiloh. He probed deeply into the discourtesy of the Grants on that fatal night and found that it was not as simple a matter as had been assumed. Dr. Eisenschimmel went into the subject with his usual thoroughness and highly imaginative scholarship. He determined the manner in which the Grants would have journeyed to Burlington. To do this, he dug up buried railroad timetables and found to his bewilderment that the Grants had gained only discomfort by going at night. They had to travel in an ordinary coach and to transfer twice at very bad hours. If they had planned on taking the morning train, they could have gone with the Lincolns to the theater and still have seen the children at Burlington in the early afternoon. Surely the general, with all of the available information at his disposal, knew this. What was the meaning of his decision? Dr. Eisenschimmel asked other questions as he delved further. Who, during the same fatal night of April 14, 1865, had tampered with the telegraph lines leading out of Washington, impeding communication when it was most necessary? Why did Secretary of War Stanton, on the flimsiest of excuses, refuse his Commander-in-Chief the company of the extraordinarily strong and alert Major Eckert? Why instead was an utterly incompetent and scattered-brained bodyguard placed at the presidential box? 
a man who went to the nearby saloon, leaving the box unguarded. Why was this man not punished or even closely questioned for his gross negligence? Perhaps the most serious reproach against historical writers, Dr. Eisenstein concluded, is not that they have left such questions unanswered, but they have failed to ask them. Dr. Eisenschimmel asked these and many other questions. He devoted many years and much money to amazing <coughs> research and provocative writing on the subject. He did not rush into print in order to capture headlines or catch pennies. He was patient, scholarly, objective, non-accusatory, even when he appeared to have the most damaging evidence against persons in both high and low places. Ultimately, he published one historical classic, Why Was Lincoln Murdered?, two lesser books on the theme, In the Shadow of Lincoln's Death, and The Case of A.L., age 56, the last published incidentally by Ralph Newman, and several articles. Strange to say, these were the subjects of a celebrated copyright infringement action brought against a leading publisher, and I was Dr. Eisenschimmel's attorney in this action. We traveled in the closest collaboration from the United States District Court to the Court of Appeals and on to the United States Supreme Court. To prepare myself for this case, I had to read and absorb the entire body of Lincoln assassination literature. I wrote about the matter in my book, A Handful of Clients. On another bypath of the Eisenschimmel case, I had to deal with the same publisher and the same attorneys who were later responsible for William Manchester's opus, The Death of a President. It is a simple truth and no rhetoric to say that my years-long absorption in the Lincoln assassination helped prepare me for my participation in that bizarre aftermath of the Kennedy assassination, the Ruby case. Anyone who wants to consider in proper perspective the severely critical contributions of Mark Lane and others to the study of the latest presidential assassination should prove Dr. Eisenschimmel's writings. I do not want to labor the matter, but it is appropriate to highlight briefly just a few of the points made by the great student of the Lincoln assassination and to supplement them by other material. Take again the matter of the criminally negligent presidential guard, John F. Parker. He was a veteran member of the Metropolitan Police Force of Washington, detailed for such duty. He would be armed with a Colt revolver, and he was supposed to stand at the entrance of the Ford Theater box, permitting no unauthorized person to enter it, and protecting the president through all hazards. Stationing this Parker at the presidential box was a strange choice indeed. True, until that time, no president of the United States had ever been assassinated. But threats had been made with respect to Lincoln from the moment of his election. He had had to sneak through nearby Baltimore in unseemly fashion on his way to his inauguration. And there had been information leading to the belief that there were abduction plots and even pla plans to kill him. He, like Kennedy, almost a century later, dwelt now sadly, now humorously, always resignedly upon the deaths of presidents, much like Richard II in Shakespeare's play. 
Washington was filled with dissidents of all kinds, from disappointed job seekers to outraged secessionists. Common sense should have dictated the best possible protection for the president. Parker had earlier been charged with conduct unbecoming an officer, the use of violent, coarse, and insolent language, loafing and sleeping while on duty, insubordination, willful violation of the rules and regulations, intoxication, visiting a house of prostitution for as long as five weeks at one stretch, <laughs> firing a pistol through a window while there, refusal to restrain some disorderly Negroes, it sounds like 1967, and the like. Yet on April 3, 1865, only 11 days before that fatal Good Friday, a request was made in his behalf that he be excused from the wartime draft, taken off his usual beat, and detailed for presidential duty at the executive mansion. This request was made by Mrs. Lincoln herself for reasons that have never been determined. The documentation in her own handwriting was found for the first time by Dr. Eisenstein many years later when he purchased the papers of the Civil War Provost Marshal of the District of Columbia. Parker went out for a drink or two at the very time when he was supposed to be at the presidential box so that Booth was able to enter it unmolested and to shoot Lincoln. Mark Lane and others would have made much of any similar episode in connection with Kennedy's assassination and its aftermath. They have made even more of lesser incidents. The Dallas police certainly took infinitely more precautions than had the District of Columbia authorities, and yet there was the same series of disasters. Destiny does not respect blue coats, it seems, or the plans of men. Did the disgraceful Parker business indicate that there was a conspiracy to kill Lincoln and others? Parker remained on the police force, seemingly protected, while Secretary of War Stanton was in power. When Stanton was at last kicked out by Lincoln's long-suffering successor, whom he had spied upon and betrayed, short shrift was given to Parker, and he was fired for less cause than there had previously been for booting him out, and he passed into oblivion until rediscovered by Dr. Eisenstein. There are conspiracies and conspiracies. Lincoln's slayer, Booth, was part of conspiracy, we know. It included an assortment of odd human beings. None of them, so far as we know, with any certainty, in high public place. Although Stanton charged the Confederate leaders from President Jefferson Davis down with complicity. In a very real sense, Booth acted alone in concocting and carrying out his murderous act. The others were onlookers and supernumeraries in effect. These witless men to whom he assigns other tasks, such as holding a horse for him or slaying Secretary of State Seward and possibly Vice President Johnson, funked and failed, but they paid with their necks, just as did a possibly innocent person, Mary Surratt. Dr. Eisenstein deals in his writings with all of the facts and inferences that might cause the Mark Lanes of history to conclude that Lincoln was the victim of his dire plot as is unfolded in MacBird in our day. The play in which a Johnson-like character kills his predecessor, just as Macbeth killed King Duncan in order to succeed him in royal office. 
Dr. Eisenschimmel proves that Stanton knew that Booth had killed Lincoln shortly after the event, but did not make his name public until 3 a.m. the next day. That while it was virtually certain that Booth was to attempt escape in the direction of Richmond, news about the assassination of Booth's role was not published in Richmond until April 17, three days later. That every road out of Washington had been barred except the very road the assassin was likely to take. That no troops were sent in immediate hot pursuit of Booth and Harrell, his young associate, even though the War Department knew they had crossed the Anacostia Bridge and were racing away. That in fact, when an officer asked for cavalry horses so that he might pursue, he was refused. That news of the assassination was published in widely separated places before it had ever occurred. That it appeared, to go to an even more basic fact, that the war was not permitted to be won by Stanton until it was certain that slavery would be abolished and the black Republicans could take over. There was much besides. Yet Dr. Eisenschimmel, not being Mark Lane, very carefully points out that the logical inference that Stanton and his black Republican associates were responsible for Lincoln's death has not a scrap of positive evidence to support it. This dark conjecture still haunts our history and holds lessons for us as we speculate widely over the Kennedy assassination and its aftermath. It would seem that there's no mystery about the actual shooting of Lincoln by Booth, regardless of any other aspect of the case. True, nobody actually saw Booth discharge the gun, but he was seen in the presidential box at Ford's Theater that fatal night of April 14, 1865, and he had jumped from the box to the stage proclaiming six Semper Tyrannus and had fled from the theater and out of Washington. He had proclaimed and believed himself the assassin. Why then should there be any question about the matter in the absence of scriveners like some of those of today? The direction of the shot, as observed by those who first saw the dying man, seemed to make impossible the gun could have been fired by someone inside the four theater box. Booth, standing where he was in the box, saw only the right side of Lincoln. But the bullet had entered the left side, not the right side of the victim, the side that Booth could not have seen. And the bullet entering below the ear had gone on an upward course in the head. This would indicate almost conclusively that Lincoln must have been shot by someone in the audience and not by Booth. But no such person had been seen and it was inconceivable that he would have been unobserved by the throng. It is true that very few people at the time were aware of these strange facts. One Washington newspaper reporter explained the matter in a way that did not truly explain. He thought that Booth had contorted his body before shooting the president as if to create a mystery where none was necessary. He said the booth had leaned over the railing of the box with the elbow of his right arm out of the box, his left hand on the balustrade. And in that unnatural position, he'd used his gun with deadly effect. This did not satisfy the reporter himself. Most people, including those in the audience, simply assumed that the bullet had penetrated the right side and did not credit any report that it was on the left. Dr. Eisenstein presents the answer to this riddle as to many others. It was supplied through James P. Ferguson, a restaurant keeper, 
a boyhood friend of Grant's who had gone to the theater to see the great general rather than the president. He had never left the presidential box out of view. He saw Booth enter the box, he saw the flash of the pistol, and he alone, it seemed, observed Lincoln every moment. As Ferguson told it to the police that very night, Lincoln's attention was attracted by some disturbance in the theater. Pulling the curtain of the box aside, Lincoln turned his head toward the center of the theater and looked down in a rather distorted or clumsy fashion. It was at this very moment that Booth fired. Thus the bullet struck Lincoln's head on the left side while it was twisted sharply to one side and the course of the bullet was downward as was Lincoln's head at that moment. Had Ferguson not observed uh, rather upward. Had, had Ferguson not observed these things, there would have remained a great mystery to plague serious students and crackpots as well. As these pages unravel, as the story of the assassination of President Kennedy and the killing of Lee Harvey Oswald is told, by the way, that all won't be told tonight. Uh, I happen to be reading some early pages from a book of mine that will appear next spring. One should remember that mysteries often have ordinary explanations and are not necessarily conspiratorial in nature, as some would believe. As Hugh Kingsmill, an English writer of my acquaintance, once observed, it is as much a form of gullibility to believe nothing as to believe everything. There were, for example, other questions arising from the autopsy. What course did the bullet take which killed Lincoln? Was it straightforward? or did it plow diagonally through the president's head? The doctors disagreed, well, but that was not the reason the patient died. The best modern medical opinion, as Dr. Eisenstein has pointed out, and it is only an opinion, inclines toward the conclusion that the bullet took a diagonal course and stopped behind the right eye. The autopsy showed that the upper bones of both eye sockets of the slain president had been completely demolished. The plates were splintered in numerous places. These broken fragments pointed towards the inside of Lincoln's head, the opposite direction to that which the Booth bullet had traveled. Examination showed that the bullet, arrested in its course, did not cause the destruction. It had not pierced the membrane separating the brain from the eye sockets. The bullet was not like modern bullets. One could only seek expert testimony for tentative explanation, but one could not be sure. I might digress for a moment. Uh, somebody at Chicago Medical School must have seen some of these passages. It accounts for the deans asking me to address the students of Chicago uh, Medical School in the next few weeks. The best opinion is that the low velocity of boost bullet is relatively heavy weight. It's having been fired at close range these tended to produce a sudden, highly forceful impact, as a result of which the eye sockets were shattered and the orbital plates broken down. Such simple explanations may no doubt be found for some of the so-called mysteries of the Kennedy autopsy. Exactly what time did the Lincoln shooting take place? The newspapers printed widely conflicting accounts. The many present at Ford Theater were apparently too shocked or too careless to look at their watches. Did Booth really shout six Semper Tyrannus as he jumped to the stage from the presidential box? Did he then explain the South is avenged? 
How long was his jump to the stage? Did he walk erectly or did he limp as he rushed to the rear of the stage? No two persons seem to have the same answers to these and many other questions. Some of the questions remain unanswered to this very day, despite the best efforts of Dr. Eisenschimmel and others. Some of these things are important, others less so. Booth was killed by Boston Corbett, or did he escape? More of this in a moment. In any event, Booth's associates, actual and alleged, eight of them, were tried by a military tribunal. All eight of them were convicted, and four of them hanged, including Mrs. Surratt, about whose participation doubt rages to this very day. The lady was hanged despite the tribunal's recommendation for mercy. The very tribunal that sentenced her to death didn't expect her to die, but she died. <coughs> the accused were clothed in hooded and heavy garments that made life almost unbearable for them even before they were tried and condemned. They were manacled and kept in the hold of an inaccessible ship. They could not speak for themselves or to their counsel. They did not have the benefit of a civil trial. There was no warrant commission, no congressional committee of inquiry to examine into the facts while they were still available. This was a blind and furious inquisition in the cruel style of oriental despots of ancient days and not in the spirit of the martyred president of an enlightened land. It is a blot upon our national reputation recalled by few. How furious our latter-day critics could well be, but Dr. Eisenschimmel is almost alone in his condemnation of what occurred. More important, he sought for answers to questions, and he forewent dogmatic answers. Those who pursued Booth, a detachment of 25 army men, were instructed to capture him and bring him back alive to Washington. He was cornered with David Harold in the tobacco shed at Gret's farm. Young Gret was sent into the barn to disarm the two men and to persuade them to surrender. They would not do so. Harold shortly afterwards left the barn and surrendered. Then the shed was set on fire so that the other occupant would be compelled to leave. This remaining man, presumably Booth, could be seen through the cracks. He seemed to be moving toward the door when suddenly there was a shot and he fell to the ground a bullet in his neck paralyzing his spinal cord. He died at sunrise the next day, April 27, 1865. So far as we know, he had been sh shot by Boston Corbett, a sergeant in Lieutenant Doherty's detachment, a religious fanatic who claimed that God had directed him to countermand his military superior's orders and to shoot Booth. Later, he said that Booth had been aiming at him with a carbine, so he shot him. No other soldier in the detachment, apparently, had seen Corbett shoot Booth. Only one person, Gret's 12-year-old son, claimed 22 years later that he saw Corbett fire. The chairman of the Congressional Committee, charged with the duty of determining who was to get the proper reward for the capture of the conspirators, said that Corbett was an insane man who forsook his place, thrust a pistol through a crack, and fired without knowing where the ball was going. It is possible that someone other than Corbett actually killed Booth, perhaps Colonel Conger, as Lieutenant Baker later claimed. But Corbett received the popular acclaim for the act and was feted throughout the country and was treated as a hero. Audience 
says, flocked to hear him speak until they were bored by his biblical bombast. His pictures sold like the proverbial hotcakes. Not even Phil Sheridan's heroic likeness sold better. He was often interviewed, invariably giving God credit for his good aim. He was given only a small share of the reward and in time wandered off and was involved in various scrapes, including another divinely inspired shooting, an unsuccessful attempt to kill the members of the Kansas legislature. He was placed in an, asylum, in an insane asylum and time escaped and was lost to history. Without laboring the matter, there were various respects in which he resembled Jack Ruby, who slew another presidential assassin almost a century later. But the reactions of the public and the authorities was, of course, totally different in each case. And Booth, who was supposedly killed by Corbett, was declared by some to have been seen later at widely separated places. A legend hard to kill has arisen with respect to him supported by many inconsistencies in the official reports and mistakes in the disposal of his remains. Just as a few persons disbelieved that Kennedy was killed in Dallas, there are some who refused to believe that Booth was the one who died at Gret's farm. In every such overwhelming events, there are conflicts of observations, discrepancies in the facts, enough to incite controversy. This is not necessarily bad if in the end the truth is learned in its ultimate sense. I might mention that uh, in connection with the fatal illness and death of Jack Ruby, I was very eager that controversies such as those about Booth would not remain with respect to Ruby. But I've learned since then that there's no way of preventing such controversies. I taped his deathbed statement of his I made certain that qualified men in Dallas and in Washington <coughs> examined the body, made a thorough autopsy report, it, one of the most thorough such reports I've ever seen. Uh, before burial of Ruby, I permitted the press to examine but not to photograph him. But I learned that there's no way of stopping some people from saying absurd things. I was told, for example, that Jack Ruby's voice was not on the tape that I myself had taken. I was told all sorts of things that made me wonder if I was capable of observing anything. I can't, of course, dwell upon all of them tonight. Let me resume now another part of this manuscript. One Saturday morning, my wife and I were driving downtown in our automobile and listening at the same time to a musical program. It was March 14, 1964, a date I would never forget, but at the moment it was just another day. The announcer suddenly interrupted the program to say, the Ruby jury is about to bring in its verdict. I uh, turned to my wife almost by reflex and said, the jury has been out for only a very short time. This means that it gave no careful consideration to the complicated psychiatric testimony, or for that matter, any other evidence. It is a hanging jury, and that's a shame. My wife is startled. You're mistaken, she said. No jury would bring in a death verdict in this sort of case. Our conversation was interrupted by the result itself. 
Yes, it was a death sentence. By now, I was almost livid with rage. It was not that I had any sympathy for murder in any form, but I thought I understood the circumstances of this supercharged case. It was clear to me that a highly emotional, unstable, perhaps mentally sick character, reacting hysterically to the assassination of a beloved president, had killed the assassin on impulse and without premeditation. My wife could not understand the depth of my feeling. I explained to her my great concern for what is called due process of law, for the protection of every individual as guaranteed by the Bill of Rights, no matter how heinous the offense he may have committed or how obnoxious he may be as a person. We did not know then that within weeks I would be deeply involved in the case. It would not be simply an intellectual exercise. My interest in it would be personal and professional, as well as that of any American citizen much concerned with our living up to the best image of our land. For me, there should be no dichotomy between principle and practice. Probably no other trial of this century has attracted such attention as the trial of Jack Ruby, wrote a reviewer in the American Bar Association Journal. It riveted the interest not only of American lawyers, but of the whole world on the operation of our system of jurisprudence. It is also probable that no other trial disturbed professionally so many lawyers and interested non-lawyers." Having suffered through this strange case for three years, I agree completely with the reviewer. It did not take place all at once or in one step. One day, my friend Michael Levin came to my office. Mike and I had known each other somewhat when we were students at the locally highly regarded Crane Technical High School and then at the University of Chicago. Perhaps because of his impoverished boyhood, he'd always had an interest in social causes. We were both active in the National Lawyers Guild when it was one of the truly vital instrumentalities for the defense of human rights, while the other bar associations were unconcerned, if not moribund. While Mike was more radical and self-sacrificing than I, we managed to work together in other groups as well, such as the Jewish Lawyers Group, known as the Decalogue Society of Lawyers, of which I had been the president. I liked him as a person, even when I disagreed with him. This day, he explained that he had been a boyhood friend of the Rubies, and particularly of, of the oldest brother, Hyman. He was still close to them and wanted to do something to help set aside the death sentence that the jury had returned against Jack. The family had no more money. They had been impoverished by the case. It was necessary to raise a lot of money in connection with the appeal. People had given money to the widow of Officer Tippett and to Marina Oswald as well. Why should they not give it to assure justice for Jack Ruby? The thing to do, to do he said, was to form a small committee and through it to send out appeals for financial help. He would act as chairman and do all of the work. Barney Ross, the famous price fighter, a boyhood friend of the Ruby family like himself, had agreed to lend his name, would I? My name would mean something, he said, as I had gotten Nathan Leopold out of prison, had helped save Paul Crump's life, and was known for my devotion to unpopular causes. I thought of my intestinal reaction that morning of March 14, 1964, when my wife and I heard the grim announcement of the Ruby death sentence, and I said yes to Mike. This, incidentally, led to the only reference to me in the proceedings of the Warren Commission. 
They were so thorough in their investigation, they wanted to know who I was and why I was connected in any way with the case. Well, from simply being a member of a committee hoping to raise funds, in a short while I became one of the attorneys in the case, and by the end I could be styled chief counsel in the case. It's a long story, one of the most involved and interesting ones of which I know. But I'm not going to tell it to you now, except for certain particulars, because there are some things I think I'd like to bring out that will be of interest. And I hope if I omit anything that is of special interest to any of you, you won't hesitate to question me about it. I was in the Soviet Union for a couple of weeks in the summer of 1966. This was shortly after I had participated in the oral arguments in the Ruby case before the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals. While there, I occasionally thought of how some Texans had reacted to the Russian journey of Melvin Belli, my predecessor in the case, who had written about his experiences. In some little minds, this meant that Ruby's first lawyer was a tainted creature. Would there be a similar, similar reaction to me? Later, I found no evidence of it. But to minimize any possible effect, I talked little of my trip while in Dallas. Incidentally, in Dallas, there is such a feeling about foreigners, real and so-called, that we had to give very serious thought in planning for the second trial of Ruby, which never took place, to get Texas psychiatrists, whatever they are. We had the closest to a Texas psychiatrist and one from Oklahoma. It was felt that a Chicago or a Detroit or a New York psychiatrist might prejudice the case. And uh, how they reconciled this to someone from Chicago being the case, I don't know. Maybe I had become by then an adopted son of Texas. I was there so often. In the Soviet Union, I learned how Russian Texans react. Our English-speaking guide was an intelligent but completely indoctrinated young woman. It was obvious that she believed all that she read in the dreary communist press. Having heard that I was Jack Ruby's lawyer, she asked me one day if she might privately discuss the case with me. I readily talked with her. I confided all that I decently could. I tried to create the impression of truthfulness and candor. It was clear that the young lady, unlike most people with whom I talk, was puzzled and disturbed by what I said. That's not what we have learned about the case here, she observed sadly. It was evident that she believed what she had read and not what I told her out of my first-hand knowledge. <clears throat> I cannot understand how a nice man like you, Mr. Gertz, can represent Jack Ruby, she concluded. I saw a little point in making clear to her our American system of justice. In a country in which lawyers struggle to exist and the police may interrogate an accused for weeks without benefit of counsel, it is difficult to understand how one can be a dedicated defender of a bumbling man who was seen by countless millions over television killing another man. I would have been a little more sympathetic with our guide had I known then what had happened, what had appeared in the Russian press, particularly Pravda and Izvestia, following the assassination in Texas of President Kennedy, Police Officer Tippett, and Lee Harvey Oswald. Few of those who read the vast literature about these killings are familiar with this material. 
It is of importance for a variety of reasons, as will become apparent. Let me now select some wholly characteristic reports that appeared within days of the tragic events in the Russian press. These are articles that were written long before there was a Warren report, long before the presidential commission hearings, before the official investigations of the various agencies were concluded, before there was a Ruby trial. Let me see now if I could select some. And I would ask you, while I read a few passages, to try to remember in particular what Mark Lane says in his Rush for Judgment. Except for the vocabulary and some relatively slight differences, the parallel between what appeared in the Russian press that first week and what appeared in Mark Lane's book is amazing. Uh, the explanation, I wouldn't presume to say. But uh, the best I could say for the articles in the Russian press is that they were as accurate as what Mark Lane wrote later, which is to say not very accurate at all. Uh, there is so much that appeared that it's difficult to select those part of passages which will um, give the flavor of those reports. Unless anyone thinks I'm a student of the Russian language, I'd better say that there is a publication in the United States which digests and reprints the uh, uh, material that appears in the Russian press. It's an official agency of the government, and I presume that the translations are accurate. At any rate, they appeared before there would be any reason to suppose they were inaccurate. Uh, if I were to sum up these articles that appeared in the Russian press, I would say that the thesis of Pravda and of Izvestia and Tas, the at-rest, was that President Kennedy was killed as a result of a conspiracy of the ultras, the extreme right wing of Dallas, men like General Walker and Hunt and others. And uh, notwithstanding any evidence pointing to Oswald, who at least called himself a Marxist, as the slayer of the president, from the very beginning, the Russian press discredited all of the reports. And the Russian press also made much of what we would surely call the ineptitude of the Dallas police and some of the investigative agencies. To the Russian press, as to Mark Lane, this was not a matter of bumbling. This was a matter of conspiracy that the police had deliberately let Ruby into the police station for the purpose of killing the, the assassin of the president or one who participated in the conspiracy before he had a chance to talk. And then the police and the others set about to destroy all of the evidence so that the American people and the world would get an utterly false picture of what really happened. And this is the kind of uh, evidence that they presented, completely fictional, I might say. They said 
that uh, Jack Ruby walked into the police station even though everyone else was excluded and extreme security measures were taken. He was seen but not interfered with. And uh, he was so easily observed that uh, cameramen took a lot of pictures of him in the very act of killing uh, Oswald that uh, Oswald saw him and tried to defend himself, but was unsuccessful. Well, I don't know how familiar you are with the actual facts, but the fact is that no one saw Jack Ruby get into the police station. Nobody assisted him in the process of getting into the police station. The pictures were taken by photographers who did not know they were taking pictures of the very act of the assassination. They, like everyone else, were stunned by what occurred. It was only later, when they developed their pictures, they found in a few instances that they had succeeded in picturing Ruby in the act of killing Oswald. Oswald, like everyone else in that basement in Dallas, was completely oblivious that Ruby was there. If you look at the pictures taken by Jack Beers, for example, of the Dallas Morning News, <coughs> you would think you were dealing with a bunch of zombies. There is Ruby stepping forward with his gun, and no one, not Oswald, not the two police officers who were holding Oswald, nobody saw him. It was not until after he actually shot Oswald that the police came to life. Now, uh, I won't enter into all the particulars, but I believe every bit of the available evidence indicates that it was the purest chance that led Jack Ruby to the police station and to the slaying of Oswald. Let me give some of the evidence, and perhaps later I can give more. It was announced everywhere, in the newspapers, and over radio and television, that Oswald was going to be moved at 10 a.m. that Sunday morning. At 10 a.m. and past 10 a.m., Jack Ruby was his, in his apartment in bed with no thought of getting up and going anywhere, least of all to the police station. A stripper who worked for him called to beg him to send some money to her. She was ill, she was pregnant, she was broke, and the fact that Jack Ruby's joint was closed over the weekend deprived her of some money. And he said he would go down to Western Union and wire the money to her. By sheer chance, the only Western Union office in Dallas, open on Sundays at that time, was an office a block or so away from the city hall and police station in Dallas. As Jack Ruby drove by the station, First of all, he drove by the county building and noticed a crowd there. We assumed that, route, that uh, Oswald had been moved. Then when he drove by the police station, the crowd there indicated to him that Oswald had been moved. He went into the Western Union office. There was a customer ahead of him. At 11.17, he wired money to Girl. We know to a certainty it was 11.17 because of the time. And he walked out of the place. It was about 330 feet 
to the station. And he, when he walked down the ramp, by sheerest chance, the one police officer at that Main Street entrance of the police station walked over to a police car to talk to Lieutenant Sam Pierce, who was an automobile there. And Ruby, just by chance, walked down at that moment and reached the bottom of the ramp almost to the second when Oswald was led there. And nobody, including Jack Ruby, could have known when Oswald would be there because Oswald was being questioned by a federal agent, Sorrells by name, and by Captain Fritz of the police department of Dallas. And they themselves didn't know when the examination would end. They finally gave up in the questioning and took Oswald down. And by chance, it was at the very moment that Ruby was there. And I happen to have in my possession the very statement first given by Ruby to Belline, Tannehill, Burleson, at the beginning, when they were questioning him. And the actual fact from his very first statement is that from the moment Ruby went down the ramp until a moment after the shooting, he was completely unaware of what was happening. Well, I could supply more details uh, on that, but I think this suffices to show how absurd general theories with respect to the assassination are. Now, with respect to the killing of the president himself, uh, it really is not as much of a mystery as Lane and Epstein and some of the others would make of it. The very first good reporters write of the event, Merriman Smith for one, I don't suppose there's a better reporter in America than Merriman Smith, happened, he happened to be in the best place to observe what was happening, the car behind the car in which Vice President Johnson was seated. And Merriman Smith happens to be a, a hunter. He's thoroughly familiar with guns, rifles, pistols. He sounds like that have meaning to him. And he wrote in his very first dispatch that three shots, and only three shots were fired, which he heard, and that they came <coughs> from the direction of the sixth floor window of the Texas the School Book Depository Building. <coughs> now, who were equally good observers. Now, why should there be a discrepancy in reporting as to the number of shots? It happens that that particular area, Dealey Plaza, is surrounded by structures which create echoes so that you might hear an echo of a shot and imagine it was another shot. And that's exactly why some people thought that other shots were fired. Now, no remains of any bullets were found except the emptied shell in the place where Oswald had been in the Texas School Book Depository. Three empty shells, and only three shells were found there. And of course, the uh, bullet, uh, bullet, the partially destroyed bullet, which was on the stretcher of Governor Connolly. And no other remains of bullets have been found anywhere. So that if there are any other shots fired, 
There is no objective evidence of it. Now, with respect to the connection of Oswald with the shooting, every bit of objective evidence that there is connects him and only him with the shooting. The palm prints, the, or the purchase of the gun under a pseudonym from Pines in Chicago, the picture of him with the rifle and with the pistol, the uh, eyewitnesses to the shooting of Tippett, what he said and did at the Texas theater when the police apprehended him, a whole, uh, a whole series of things, what was said by his wife and what was said by others, all pointed to his being the assassin of the president. Now, having said that, it doesn't mean that it is absolutely certain that no one else was connected with Oswald. We know from Booth's killing of Lincoln that there are all sorts of conspiracies. Booth had a conspiracy. Some extra numerals, so to speak, were involved in it. But Booth carried the thing through himself. It could very well be that Oswald was tied up either with a pro or anti-Castro group or some other group who advised him, who may have done other things. Yeah. Perhaps we'll find out about those things. Perhaps we won't. Uh, it's very mischievous when the American people or any people are put in the mood of such complete skepticism as they are with respect to an inquiry under the auspices of this inquiry. The Warren Commission was headed by a very respected Chief Justice of the United States. On the commission were leaders of both parties and other highly respected Americans. There were lawyers who were honorable and able. Some of them I know intimately, and I would be deeply surprised, to put it mildly, if they did not do their work well. It seems to me that it's time that even those of us who like whodunits begin getting hold of ourselves and think only in terms of the objective facts. Now, that doesn't mean mistakes were not made with respect to the Warren hearings and with respect to the protection of the president and in other respects. I think it was an absurdity, or worse, for the commission to refrain from looking at the <laughs> autopsy x-rays and pictures whatever the sensitivities of Mrs. Kennedy or the other Kennedys were. It was their obligation. And the fact that they weren't physicians didn't mean they couldn't call in physicians to confer with them. Well, those pictures are available. And they seem to answer satisfactorily all of the questions that have been raised. Now, one of the principal uh, questions arises from whether or not there was an entry wound in uh, President Kennedy's throat. Uh, the uh, rumor that there was such an entry bullet in the President's throat arose because of errors made by the physicians at the Parkland Hospital who seemed to have forgotten that they had made an opening in the throat 
in the forlorn hope of keeping the president alive. The actual fact is that no assassin in his right mind would have attempted to shoot the president from in front or the side. Because if he shot from the front, you'd have to gamble on the bullet penetrating the rather thick windshield. And from the side, you would have to hope for a good aim with the odds against you. Nobody could have shot the president from the railroad embankment because, as I have said, even an overgrown cockroach would have been seen from the embankment, would have been visible long before the presidential car arrived. And nobody could have shot from the grassy now because he would have had to shoot through the windshield and couldn't have had a good aim. The only place from which the president could have been shot was from an area above and to the rear. A person uh, intending to shoot the president would have been able to get a good aim from there, could have gotten a beat in the president before the car got near the book depository, and it would not have been the great feat that some say it was to shoot the president. You know, there's no substitute for being on the scene. My first night in Dallas, I had the irresistible desire to go near the scene of the assassination. And what startled me more than anything else was how close the assassination window was from the presidential car. I had been reading a lot about the case and formed the impression that this was a tremendous distance, that it represented a real feat, when it was nothing of the kind. Anyone who had been a Marine had been a sharpshooter there. The only Marine who isn't a good a sharpshooter is my son-in-law. But, <laughs> but otherwise, I dare say, it was a rel relatively easy job for anyone to shoot the president. Uh, it's a very distressing thing that the investigation was was bungled in the first instance by police officers who were more desirous of getting publicity and of cooperating with the press than of protecting uh, Oswald. The chances are that if Oswald had survived, he couldn't have had a fair trial any more than Ruby had a fair trial in the first instance. They had deprived Oswald of almost every right he had as a human being, even assuming his guilt. Uh, interestingly enough, this is something you probably have never heard. Oswald had said he wanted an attorney from the American Civil Liberties Union. And the American Civil Liberties Union had asked William Kunstler, one of its national board, a leading attorney, to go down to Dallas that Sunday morning. Kunstler was at the airport about to take a plane when he was stopped and told that Oswald had no need for an attorney, that he was dead. Interestingly enough, Bill Kunstler was one of my associates in the defense of Jack Ruby. The case is filled with that kind of coincidence, and there's no reason to assume that in the whole course of the history of the event that there were not other similar coincidences. You know, we have a very curious habit of assuming that everything has to be completely logical. As a lawyer who's had some experience in the trial of cases, let me tell you that the kind of case that can be knocked over most quickly is a completely logical case. 
Something that seems letter perfect is far from perfect. Human events don't happen that way. You don't get a case that doesn't seem to have real contradictions in it, uh, inequitable problems attached to them. All you can do in any trial or as an historian is to reach at probables. Interestingly enough, one of the most uh, valuable statements on uh, that that I have found is by a man whose name I'll give you after I read the excerpt. I had been trying to find out for the purposes of my book just what constitutes proof of the truth. Just how do you determine what the truth is? And uh, I, I didn't stop with a quip like Pilate is alleged to have done at the time of Jesus. I explored various definitions in law books, the dictionaries, and in works on logic. And I read this statement, and it'll be a good place to stop for questioning after I read it and tell you who said it. In regard to probable opinion, we can derive great assistance from coherence, which we rejected as the definition of truth, but may often use as a criterion. A body of individually probable opinions, if they are mutually coherent, become more probable than any one of them would be individually. It is in this way that many scientific hypotheses acquire their probability. They fit into a coherent system of probable opinions and thus become more probable than they would be in isolation. But this test, though it increases probability, where it is successful, never gives absolute certainty, unless there is certainty already at some point in the coherent system. Thus, the mere organization of probability opinion will never by itself transform it into indubitable knowledge. Well, the one who said that was Bertrand Russell, who incidentally is one of the principal critics of the Warren Report, and an amazing critic. He's much like some of the other critics. Burton Russell published his criticism of the Warren Report before he read the report. <laughs> he wasn't this great philosopher, and he is a great philosopher, was not going to be impeded by the facts. <laughs> well, I hope I have given a sort of preliminary view and only a, a very tiny segment of this very full and interesting story. You know, I have had several interesting clients. Jack Ruby was not an interesting man. In many respects, he was a very dull man. But his case was undoubtedly the most interesting case in which I ever worked. Uh, it illustrated for me many, many things. And I hope that some of you in your questioning of me will help bring out some of the lessons that I personally absorbed from participation in the case. Thank you. While Omer is catching his breath, let me apologize, not to them, because it's no hardship to Dan Lipinski and Art Berquist and Charlie Wasselhoff not to have been introduced to this group. You all know them so very well. But uh, to you, as members of the club that I didn't introduce to you, one of our valued and out-of-the-city members who's been very useful to us and 
very helpful to us indeed in many of our field trips in the Washington area, Claire Graham. And Claire, would you stand up? And now we are ready for our question period, and I want to say that uh, uh, before it starts, Elmer, that I'm not sure of it, but this has probably been one of the finest and most provocative speeches that we have heard. It seems to me to be quite probable, and the first question that I see is from this direction. Elmer, I can't quite Yeah. If uh, you or I or any of these other gentlemen walked in, I'm sure we wouldn't have that idea. Yet here's a man that walked in with a gun in his pocket. Uh, I can't quite understand why if a man walked in with a gun in his pocket, why he wouldn't have that idea before. Well, uh, first of all, you're dealing with Texas and not Chicago. In Texas, many people, including clergymen, carry guns. The uh, Bill Alexander, who was one of those who tried the case against Ruby, always carries a gun. Uh, every I have heard of ministers getting guns as uh, Christmas presents. <laughs> uh, I, we couldn't confer with the district attorney because he, uh, for a period of time, because he was busily engaged in hunting. Now, Jack Ruby always carried a gun. He used to bank in his pocket, perhaps because he owed the government money and perhaps because uh, of his fear of the security of some of the banks. It was nothing unusual, in other words, for him to carry a gun. Now, why do I say this is pure happenstance? Suppose Jack Ruby plan, had planned to kill Oswald. Would he gamble on getting there at a time when Oswald might be away, might be taken away from the prison, might not be available for being shot. He had seen Oswald that Friday night in the assembly room at the police station. He was close to him. Nobody uh, could have stopped him if he'd killed Oswald that night. And he didn't. He had a gun with him then, too. Uh, the... Uh, I can't pretend to read a man's mind, but I spent many, many hours and many, many days talking with him. And I am absolutely certain in my own mind he never had the thought of killing Oswald unless it was the kind of thinking that a lot of people had. I like to kill that SOB, that type of thing. Mr. Fish. Uh, we know that there was no conspiracy involved in the assassination of McKinley and Garfield. At least that history doesn't seem to emphasize that. But in your remarks uh, about the assassination of Lincoln, you inferred, at least I gathered, you inferred that there was a conspiratorial atmosphere that prevailed you know, years before the assassination and during the assassination. Stanton was involved, others, and so forth and so on. No, I don't I, say Stanton. Oh, right, at least that was my, at least there was, there was an inference of, of, of a conspiracy. And it seemed to me that you also uh, inferred, unless I'm wrong, there was some type of a conspiracy concerning the assassination of 
Kennedy, and that was where you tied in both the subject of Kennedy and Lincoln. I can't see yeah. any of them. Well, let me say this. Now, uh, uh, pardon me. Now, uh, would you care to remark about uh, the atmosphere that prevailed immediately after the assassination of Kennedy, where there were uh, thoughts of some conspiracy on the part of either the lack of the FBI. Uh, the FBI, I understand, is very, very circumspect insofar as the root of the president is concerned in any given city, how they overlooked this building where he might have been shot at, uh, and there are other aspects. Uh, there, there were stories of the FBI, members of the FBI being drunk on the night before, and they were derelict in their duty, and so forth and so on. Would you care to comment yeah. on that? Yeah, uh, of course you have to remember, Morris, that I commented fully on what you had to say. I'd make another speech. And while I might enjoy it, I'm not sure you would. Now, let me give you some of the effects, as I know them. Uh, surely there were various plots to kill the president or to abduct him. President Lincoln, I mean. And if anyone were looking for strange things, what could be stranger than the selection of uh, Parker? If you wanted to pick out the most incompetent person in the Metropolitan Police Department of Washington, you would have picked out Parker. And, and Mrs. Lincoln picked. And nobody would claim that Mrs. Lincoln deliberately put in an incompetent. As a matter of fact, after the president was killed, uh, she went almost insane was grief and accused Parker of being responsible for her husband's death and, and Parker had to flee from her wrath. Now, the atmosphere in Dallas was of course a very bad one. It was an unsafe place for a new dealer or any liberal to go. Uh, <laughs> Ambassador Stevenson had been spat upon Mrs. Johnson and Vice President Johnson had been abused there. Many people urged President Kennedy not to go to Texas, including Fulbright, including the National Committeeman from Texas and others. But he went there anyway. Now, it, uh, you talk about Parker's laxity. The Secret Service, not the FBI. The Secret Service is charged with the... Uh, you know, the Secret Service has two duties. They guard the money of the United States, the currency, and they guard the president, who's probably as precious as gold, which we don't have. And... Uh, What's gold? Uh, they, uh, the Secret Service is supposed to be alert. They weren't alert. They're supposed to rest so they can guard the president. They were out to all hours for the night and morning. Even those who didn't uh, drink hard liquor, uh, drank and ate other things and were otherwise engaged and were certainly for relatively middle-aged persons, they were not equipped to guard the president. Now, the FBI, not the Secret Service, knew of the record of Oswald because Oswald had, been, had defected from the United States, had gone to Russia and had then left Russia and gone back to the United States. And there are all kinds of suspicious circumstances about him. The, uh, the FBI is supposed to inform the Secret Service of suspicious characters. They're supposed to contain those characters. For example, maybe this doesn't happen in a democratic country. When a president of the United States visited Mexico, the chief of the Mexican police imprisoned 
leading communists, leading uh, dissidents, and others. And he told them very bluntly that if anything happened to the President of the United States while he was in Mexico City, they were going to be shot. <laughs> well, I don't recommend that, but uh, it's certainly more precautious than uh, Dallas. And something ought to be done without sacrificing our liberties to make certain that a president is better protected. Dan LePensky, I Yeah, Dan. Did you, did you know, poor, poor Dan, I might say, he had the, I don't know if it's a pleasure, but at any rate, he was present when I first spoke on this subject. And, I'm relieved to hear you didn't have the conference with me. <laughs> you know, uh, one, uh, I want to say this by way of indirect answer. Uh, when I got into the Ruby case, uh, I felt that the atmosphere in Dallas and perhaps in all Texas was still a poisoned line. I felt that we had to maneuver to gain time so that the courts in Texas, even before the United States Supreme Court had a chance at it, would do justice in this case. And uh, I think that our maneuver succeeded because at first it was quite a job even to get into the case. We were called foreigners, communists, uh, Jews, uh, all kind, uh, carpetbaggers and the, uh, and the like. And by the end, uh, I think the court uh, was well disposed towards us. At any rate, their ultimate unanimous ruling was in our favor. I think if in 1964 we had argued the matter, assuming we would have been permitted to argue it, we would not have been treated civilly and there would not have been a reversal. Mort Feigen. Now we're in about the middle of the 30s. I lived in Dallas for about a year and a half. At that time, I found it, as a young man, to be a very uh, city of immeasurable violence. There seemed to be an air, even then, of violence. It had many undercurrents that still a frontier town. Uh, alcoholism was rampant. Uh, homicidal. You mean more rampant than elsewhere? Well, it's rampant enough around here. Down in Dallas, it seems to be a way of life. Uh, on a Saturday night, I used to see these ambulances running back and forth that I call them ambulances, and I finally asked what they were. The Dallas name for it was Newquack. And uh, they would pick up the, the dead bodies. Yeah. Uh, and Dallas and Memphis, as I recall, for a long period of time, vied with each other for the highest per capita rate of murder. <laughs> the homicidal rate was, was tremendous. The, uh, it, there was something in, in the air there that was, that was uh, sick. Now, uh, 
course, Mort, I hope you don't mind my interrupting you. Uh, I don't want to put a finger particularly in the face of uh, uh, no, Dallas. I think there's too much violence all over this country. And it isn't confined to Dallas. Uh, you can't generalize about a city, you can't generalize about a state, or about a country. But the point that I wanted to make is this. When you uh, were the uh, uh, member of the defense council there, uh, what, uh, didn't you have the right of a change of venue to move this case into another jurisdiction? Well, the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals, in when they reversed the case, uh, ordered that the case, this new trial be held outside of Dallas County. And they, and they gave that as one grounds for reversing Judge Brown, that he had failed to grant the change of venue. That was one of the grounds. Jerry Warshaw. I'd like to ask Jeff a question. Do you think a trial ever would have been held uh, had Oswald been? Oh, a trial would have been held, and it would have been a miracle if he could have received a fair trial. Let me phrase it this way. If Jack Ruby couldn't receive a fair trial, and I think he did now, how much more difficult would it have been for Osborne? Well, uh, it, uh, he would still be among the living, I'm sure, even if he had been sentenced to death, because there would have been all sorts of maneuvers. Wilson Smith, please. Now, you paint Jack Ruby as a sort of an innocent bystander here. Didn't he run strip joints? Didn't he run souls? Wasn't he a pimp? Wasn't he everything else? No. Why in the hell should he expect that? No, no. Jack Ruby, let me You're recommending him for membership, Wilson, or? Yes. <laughs> thumbnail sketch of Jack Ruby. Jack Ruby, by his own lights, was a decent, patriotic American with a very great love of the country and its institution. He happened to be... Jack Ruby had never been convicted of a crime. It isn't a crime to run a striptease joint, even though some of the bodies are criminal. <laughs> and uh, uh, he, uh, he was known to and liked by the police and uh, others. He was an average Joe, like dropping names. He was, it just happened to commit the crime. There's no element of proof that this was planned. And there's nothing in Jack Ruby's character except for the street of violence in him. He was a hot-headed guy. And he apparently did have a form of psychomotor epilepsy variant which caused him at times to black out and, and in, in such a state to do things that he might not otherwise do. You know, the, uh, in about 2% of the cases of psychomotor epilepsy variant, violence is possible. And he was in that 2%, I think. I think there's good evidence. <coughs> and who is to say what the origin of his illness was. You know, he died ultimately from cancer, which included a malignancy in his brain. The doctors, including my own brother, don't think it originated prior to the killing. But who knows? Uh, there is a, there's a good deal to indicate from his family history that he, he was susceptible to this kind of thing. His mother lived for many years at Elgin State Hospital here. His father who, uh, was not a particularly sound man. Brothers and sisters of his had had nervous breakdowns. He himself had uh, been in several melancholic stages. And uh, 
This all added up to a series of circumstances which culminated in this tragic happening. Now, uh, Jack Ruby himself, to judge by my own conversations with him, never ceased to be puzzled as to what had happened or why it happened. Uh, some moments he blamed President Johnson for it. Somehow, in his distorted mind, the president was somehow connected with this happening. Jack Ruby believed that the Jews of the United States, because of what he had done, were being transported to the basement of the Dallas County Jail and there castrated and killed. And he, uh, well, it's really to say, psychiatrists, including some of the state's own psychiatrists, the same ones who had testified at the trial that he was saying, later examined him and reached the conclusion that he was psychotic. Uh, he actually believed that uh, this was happening. And he used to actually weep and say, it's terrible that a nice guy like you, Elmer, is going to meet a terrible death in your family, going to be killed because you got mixed up in my case. And uh, there was uh, every kind of indication of a sick mentality. Strangely enough, when he was on his deathbed, he was more rational than at any time in the almost three years that I knew him. There, there was a kind of calm that came upon him at that time, which hadn't existed prior to that. I have the very last letter Jack Ruby wrote in jail, uh, which uh, I'll give a part to my book, which will appear for the first time in my book. That letter uh, written uh, within days of his death, and uh, anyone reading it would say that this is either a monumental fraud or the nuttiest person in that area. Yeah. Dr. Clausen. Uh, I never associated the mystery with the fact that the Grants declined Lincoln's invitation, Mrs. Lincoln's invitation. After all, uh, Julia Dent Grant was a very uh, mild-tempered person, and she was with Mrs. Lincoln in the carriage at the time at City Point when she berated the wife, the young wife of the general who inadvertently rode next to Lincoln on horseback. I think when she got to thinking of the situation, I mean Mrs. Grant, she felt, I can't go through this again. Let's get out of it. Being a married man, I understand that except for the general, I can't go through this again. Let's decline tonight for some reason. So I regard there was no mystery. Uh, uh, Hart, would you refuse an invitation from the President of the United States if, if you were the general, I think I would. You know, uh, maybe the explanation of Grant's outbreak there is that he didn't like our American cousin. If any of you have read it, uh, you would agree with me that the actors ought to have been shot, not the president. <laughs> I saw many other hands. I don't, yes. Back on the Civil War for a moment. In all of the publicity of Boston Corbett and the claims that he shot Booth, the one fact that was medically proved and ballistically proved it was seemed to have been ignored that, that Corbett had a carbine and Booth was shot with a revolver bullet. And I'm wondering if you or Dr. Eisenschimmel ever could discover why this was just seemingly ignored. Well, apparently some people didn't want to pry too closely. I wouldn't be surprised at all if Lieutenant Conger was the one who actually uh, killed. Uh, but uh, this strange character, Boston Corbett, and wanted to take credit for it. And certainly Conger wouldn't interfere with it. And uh, 
you may remember that apparently some people were suspicious of him because he got, as I mentioned earlier, only a small part of the reward. He should have gotten a substantial sum, but he didn't. Well, uh, there, there were uh, mysteries. I don't think it was because uh, anyone was trying to shut up Booth, uh, but strange things can happen. You know, you could certainly the case against Stanton is a very strong circumstantial case, but uh, all it proves really is that Stanton was a bastard. Well, he was a proud bastard. He, he believed that that was his patriotic duty to be that in that particular period. And I don't think there's any doubt but that he was a very effective Secretary of War, certainly more effective than his predecessor. And uh, he, uh, he didn't stand in the way of Grant. He didn't stand in the way of uh, winning the war uh, in the end when uh, you may remember that Lincoln himself interfered a good deal with military affairs until he found a real general in Grant, and then he ceased to interfere. Albert, could you take a question for my benefactor, Hal Hickson? Oh, yeah. <laughs> 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 you pull it for him. Well, you gave him a putter over the head or the eye? No. Short on so. <laughs> uh, nobody seems to have been concerned about this character in New Orleans who uh, claims there was Garrison. conspiracy. Okay, Jim Garrison? Uh, Garrison. That seems to have died out of the news lately. What is your opinion? Well, uh, you know, I am following it very closely. I get the New Orleans papers daily, and it's certainly not that there. Columns appear daily about it. But I personally have the feeling that Jim Garrison, uh, well, uh, in the presence of a newspaper man like Gil Twist, I ought not to say something like this, is a monumental fraud. I don't think that he has any evidence of any kind with respect to the assassination of Kennedy. Well, what was his purpose? Merely publicity? Well, I don't know. Uh, it, you know, I think it would be harder to analyze uh, Garrison's purpose than Jack Ruby's purpose or <laughs> The political animal is a very curious character. First of all, whatever possesses anyone to aspire to be president of the United States, I don't know. It's a sure recipe for infamy, for restless days and nights, for being the target of every kind of abuse and obscenity, for being faced with absolutely impossible job. Nobody could be a really good president of the United States. And yet everybody, including at least one Mormon, aspires to the job. <laughs> 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 I, I have one question. It's constantly referred that Stanton didn't pose the one escape route down in the Maryland. And yet the same people who say that say, oh, well, as you did, he was a bastard, but he didn't kill Lincoln. Why do you constantly refer to the fact that that route, which was the obvious one, was not closed, uh, and Stanton was the only one who could close it? Thoughtlessness, ineptitude, uh, those things are always happening. Uh, what could be more obviously the wrong thing than to have the guard go off to a saloon for one or two drinks? Uh, you know, a lot of things happen. What could be more obvious than, obviously the wrong thing, than for the Secret Service men in hostile territory like Dallas not being fresh enough through rest and attention to their duties? 
And these, these weren't bums. These were decent people. It, it isn't conspiratorial. It just happened. You know, we always assume that human events are governed by sense. And who was it to say to his grandson, you have no idea with how much stupidity the world is governed? <laughs> Don Russell. Yeah. Elmer, you've heard it all around this. What I was wondering is, did Jack Ruby in his deathbed statement change anything that he had said before? No. Jack Ruby's deathbed statement was completely consistent with what he had said earlier. It was in parts a little incoherent, but in general, it was the same thing. That he was worried by the fear that people would think him a communist or would couple him with Oswald or would couple him with Castro. He, as I say, by his lights, he was a patriotic American. Yes. Yeah, Dan Furman, a good friend of yours at the University of Chicago, warned us about this in class. He called it the uh, problem of architectonism in history. The what? The problem of architectonism. That is the, the, the need to structure things where they have no structure. Yeah. To see a pattern where there isn't any pattern. Which people do when there's a, an event that has a lot of emotional impact. Yeah. But do you think there's any cure for that surrounding uh, a very great series of events like this? No, no. I, I think uh, human nature being what it is, it is incurable. But Dan Burstyn, who happened to be a dear friend of mine, has another concept which comes into play here. Dan, in one of his books, has written of the pseudo-event. That pseudo-event created by the press uh, is responsible sometimes for very tragic events. I think the assassination of Oswald, if not the assassination of the president, was the necessity of the press to get uh, every disgusting detail of every event. Well, don't misunderstand me. I believe in complete freedom of the press, uh, and even when they say the truth about me. <laughs> but uh, I will not restrain the press in any way. I think they ought to have a sense of responsibility. But I will set aside any verdict that's the result of misconduct of the press or of any force. Donovan? Elmer, I want to refer back to uh, the do you think that Ruby, or do you know that he was aware of the fact that that was a terminal illness? Oh, yes, surely. Oh, yes. Yeah. Incidentally, it shows how simply some things can be discussed. Uh, when I first visited Jack after he was informed that he's having cancer, uh, for want of something uh, more sensible to ask, I said, Jack, how do you feel? And his answer was, like a dying man. And then he talked about a football game. <laughs> Yes. Uh, prior to you um, being on the case of Jack Ruby, had you been down in Dallas before? I mean, could give us a little objective view, not as a lawyer for Jack Ruby, uh, what the feelings were if you'd been down there for a visit sometime before and then later? No, I, I didn't know Dallas. I've traveled. All, I'm what's known as a traveling lawyer, uh, cousin German to the traveling salesman. I've been all over the country trying cases. But I had never been to Dallas, and I can judge it only by the objective.